morning, church. Today in our time in the Scriptures will be in 1 Samuel chapter 9, so if you want to turn there. Anyone with uh, kids up through fifth grade, if you'd like them to go to Gospel Project, now's the time. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you, and in those blue Bibles will be on page 132, page 132. The large numbers you see are the chapter numbers, and the small numbers are the verse numbers. We'll be looking at chapter 9 and 10, both, uh, this morning. We are about a third of the way through uh, the book of 1 Samuel. We're just working our way passage by passage through. I hope you're uh, enjoying, if you've been with us, the way this ancient book reveals to us God's interactions with a fickle people, people who can't make up their mind whether they're with God or against Him. First Samuel is especially useful for helping us understand the topic of kingship. Most of us are not from uh, parts of the world where there are absolute monarchs whose decisions have uh, absolute ramification over everybody. And yet that forms the basis for what we find in the book of First Samuel. It's through these lesser kings that the book presents, that we'll be better prepared to understand the superior king, King Jesus, the king who is, in fact, over all. Now, last Sunday morning, we paused working our way through 1 Samuel in order to consider the the resurrection of Jesus on uh, Easter Sunday morning, and just want to take a moment to thank you for uh, how many of you invited people and We had a huge turnout on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday, but really more than the amount of people that were here, what was such an encouragement to us as uh, elders and staff is how well you engaged people who were visiting. Just heard again and again and again from people who were visiting how welcoming and kind and generous you were. So thanks so much for that. Do pray that those who uh, were with us that are not normally in a church that God's Word would bear fruit, and they would find some good, particular local church to be a part of. So we've actually been two weeks then since we've been in this book. So just briefly by way of reminder, in 1 Samuel 8, we found the Israelites demanding a king. Through the prophet Samuel, they asked that God would appoint a king. Samuel had judged the people of Israel for years, but now he was old, and his sons weren't following in the ways of God. And so the the desire of the Israelites was to have a king so that they could fit in, so that they could be like everybody else around them. But in chapter 8, God warned them that if you get a king who's a king like all the other nations, then this will lead you into hardship. They were steadfast in their desire anyway, and so God said He would give them over to what they wanted. This morning, by turning to chapter 9, we begin a new section in the book of 1 Samuel, and we'll meet new characters, and a new era will dawn, all by going from chapter 8 to 9. Would you follow along with me, and we'll begin in verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeru, 
son of Bicharath, son of Aphiath, a Benjamin, a man of wealth. Aren't you glad you didn't get to read today? He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. For he, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Kish and his son Saul enter the drama of the book of 1 Samuel here. This is the, the first mention of them. And Saul will dominate most of the story from here on. He's going to become a colossal character in the remaining parts we will cover of 1 John. Now notice how, how he's described. He's got a wealthy daddy, and he's handsome, and he's tall. One thing to remember as you're reading the Bible is there are no superfluous details. There, there's nothing there that's just filler. It's all there in order to instruct us towards some particular end. And so we've got to ask, why is the text telling us how tall he is? Now something interesting, some useless trivia for you, uh, the only place in the entire Old Testament where an Israelite's height is commended is here, the only spot. Every other place somebody's height is mentioned as being um, significant is a foreigner, an enemy of the people of God. Here, Saul is talked about in terms of his height. I think the point is, if a king is to come from good stock, and if he's to have a commanding physical presence, then Saul is the ideal man for the throne. He looks like a king. Now, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Let's look at the next couple of verses. Verse 3. Now, the donkeys of Kish. How many of you saw that one coming? The donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. He passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they didn't find them. They passed through the land of Salim, but they were not there. They passed through the land of Benjamin, but he did not find them. How does the story of God's providence in bringing about a king for Israel begin? It begins with a search for some donkeys. Now, we'll see how awake you are and how on your toes you are. It's not like Saul's running for the office of king, and so his dad sent him out searching for Democrats. These are actual donkeys. He was sent to search not for voters, but for animals. Those three of you who understood that, thank you for enjoying it with me. Saul wasn't expecting anything special. This is just a normal day. The donkeys wander off again. Dad sends him out to find him. And they go, and they go, and they go, and they go, and they go. Wandering all over ancient Palestine looking for the donkeys. 
Now, one thing that's clear is Saul isn't doing very well on the search. There's a bit of irony here that's being set up for us. Saul can't even track down some lost animals. Now, many of us will spend the days coming up this week doing what feels like a string of insignificant random tasks. We will, quote, go searching for lost donkeys. We'll do things that feel unimportant, mundane, and rather silly. But this story by implication reminds us that nothing is actually happenstance. Nothing turns out in the end through the vantage point from which God sees. Nothing is insignificant. Jesus himself said that one, not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from God's will. And Jesus said in the same passage in Matthew that God knows the exact number of hairs on your head. Now, for a few of us, that's no big deal at all. But the point is that everything, even the most minute details about us, are all under the providential care of God. God sees, God knows, God directs, God's in charge. Saul searched for donkeys, and any of the odd things we'll find ourselves doing this week. God's sovereign over it all. Now, normally in a sermon covering uh, two entire chapters, what I'd want to do is sort of zoom in and out at particular points in order to catch the high spots, in order to to get the most important verses emphasizing the most important things. But in this particular story, we can't really do it that way because the details, the things that seem incidental, are, in fact, what gradually stack up in order for us to see the point of the whole text. And so I'm going to ask for your particular graciousness this morning. You always give me much but would you give me a little cherry on top? Would you allow me to read a lot of this story? And in so doing, would you pay attention to all the details? And would you watch in particular for what we might call an abundance of coincidences? The text is full of them. Verse 5. When they came to the land... Of Zipf. Saul said to a servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father seek to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. The first time Saul speaks in the entire Bible, the words he has to share are words of failure. They're words of wanting to give up. His dad sent him on a duty and he wanted to pack it in. But watch how Saul's servant intervened. Verse 6. But he said to him, Behold, there's a man of God in this city. What are the chances? They've wandered all over the place, and they wind up in the city where Samuel lives. And he 
is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, but, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone and there's no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today, prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And they went up to the hill to the city. There met young women coming out to draw water. And they said to him, is the seer here? They said, he is. Behold, he's just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes. But he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards... Those who are invited will eat. Now, now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city, and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now remember, as far as Saul knows, all of this is about the search for some missing animals. Saul and his servant go to Samuel hoping that he could give them some guidance as to where these pesky four-legged hide-and-seeking donkeys went. They have looked and looked and looked and looked, and they can't find them anywhere. But maybe, maybe Samuel will know. But the narrator is, is about to push pause on the action and zoom out and tell us something else going to give us some outside information. Verse 15, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. You shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I've seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He is the one who shall restrain my people. If you'll remember back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, the elders came to Samuel and demanded that they have a king so that they could fit in, so they could be like everybody else. And Samuel in response, sent them home. He sent them home because his intention was to appoint the king that God would choose. You see, God essentially said to the people, if you want to be led by a selfish worldly man, then I'll give you one. I'll give you one so that you would learn not to pursue worldliness, but instead to live as my separate people. Now here, we don't know exactly how long it's been, but God told Samuel, Saul is that king. 
But, Samuel do- but Saul doesn't know that. Saul's seeking donkeys, and he's about to get a kingdom. What an odd thing. Verse 18. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate, and he said to me, Tell me where is the house of the seer? It's becoming increasingly clear as we work our way through the text that not a lot of good is being presented about Saul. First, he can't find the donkeys. Then he doesn't seem to even know who Samuel is. Verse 19, Samuel answered Saul, I'm I'm the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you will eat with me. And in the morning I will go and I will tell you what's on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me this way? Saul doesn't know what's going on, but he knows enough to know he doesn't know what's going on. Verse 22, Then Samuel took Saul and the young man and brought him to the hall and gave him a place at the head of those who had been invited. There were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring me the portion I gave you, of which I said, Put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what is kept is set before you. Eat, because it's kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. Earlier in the Old Testament, God had instructed his people that when you gather for a Thanksgiving meal after a sacrifice, not, not Thanksgiving with the pilgrims in November, but a, a, a meal of gratitude after an offering has been presented, then you're to take the choice portion of the animal and give it to the priest, give it to the person of honor. And here, Saul, who is a nobody, who doesn't know any of these people, is given the place of greatest prominence and privilege. He's given the prime meat. Can you imagine how confused Saul must have been? He just wants the bloody donkeys. But now he finds himself sitting at the table being treated in a kingly way. But it's going to get even more strange. So Saul ate with Samuel that day, verse 25. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up! that I may send you on your way. How would you like to be woken that way? Up! Get out of here! So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. 
As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he's passed, stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. Here comes the big moment. Then Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on his head, and kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will be met by two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin of Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three goats another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine. I told you it would get weirder. And they will greet you and give you the two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gebeth Elohim, where there's a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you enter the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a harp, a tambourine, a flute, and a lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush on you, and you will prophesy with them. You will be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet, you do what your hand finds you to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. This has got to be one of the strangest stories in the whole Bible. It is quite literally overflowing with bizarreness, with oddity after oddity after oddity. Think with me for just a moment about the abundance of coincidences that are stacked up one on top of the next. First, Some donkeys wander away. Second, Saul goes looking for the donkeys, but he can't find them. Third, he wants to go home, but the servant persuades him to stay. And they just so happen to be in the city where Samuel's from. Fourth, wealthy Saul has nothing to give Samuel. But the servant, who likely had literally nothing to his name, just happens to have money in his pocket. Then, as they go to the town, they find women who say that Samuel happens to be in town. This was a guy who traveled a lot, but he was there. Sixth, they enter the city at the gate, and it just so happens that Samuel's standing there. And Samuel, without Saul even asking, tells him, don't worry about the donkeys. Seventh, the next thing we know, Saul's at the great place of honor, being treated like a leader with great esteem. Eight, after a good sleep, Saul's told he's going to become a king. 
and he's given three signs, three things that the prophet says, this is going to happen, and that will be proof to you that what I've said is, in fact, the Word of God. This is a bizarre set of coincidences. But friend, the point is, clearly, that none of them are, in fact, coincidences at all. God wanted it to be very, very, very clear that although Israel demanded a king, God would choose which one. God would oversee all of it. And God brought it about. But it is weird nonetheless, isn't it? In some ways, doesn't life feel like this? You go searching for your lost keys. You end up in a random conversation. That leads to learning about a new job opportunity or witnessing to somebody you never would have met or gaining a friend. Our days are filled with tons and tons and tons of things that we never quite can be sure why they are happening, but they do. Christian or non-Christian hearing this sermon, it it doesn't matter. It, It is universally true that God governs every moment of your day. Not a single thing happens that catches him by surprise. There are no coincidences. God sovereignly oversees everything. And Christians, He is orchestrating all things in your life for the good of making you more like Jesus. What a comfort that is. Especially after you have one of those days when everything seems to have gone, quote, wrong. And you are exhausting yourself over a bizarre set of random circumstances. The clear implication, it's not the main point of this passage, but a clear implication is that we can be comforted in knowing that God is in charge. Now for Saul, God's doing something completely unexpected. And verse 9 of chapter 10 is a great window into the whole next paragraph. We might call it the unexpected outcome. It says in verse 10, When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. Friends, Samuel had told Saul what would happen. And Saul did, in fact, become king. God gave him another heart. This is an expression that here must mean God set him apart for a particular task. The big idea of this passage is that through seemingly bizarre coincidences, God sovereignly placed and provided a king like the nations for his people. All these events come together in such a way that a man 
went looking for lost donkeys and found a kingship. The reason this seems so strange to us is it is. That's the point being emphasized. God had to have brought this about. God provided this king in response to the idolatrous demands of his people. Now, if all of this feels distance, distant, archaic, unnecessary, you wish you would have slept in this morning then here's a good spot to lean back in. Friend, Israel would get this king because they had wandered from God. Israel would get this particular king as an act of discipline from God. But even in his discipline, God had mercy on them. I love that part of this story. Look back at verse 16 of chapter 9. Don't miss this. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I've seen my people because their cry has come to me. Now think back to what's already happened. God's people had yet again turned on God. They had rejected God himself being their king. God had faithfully gone before them in battles and given them victory that they could not have won themselves. God had provided Samuel. And for years and years and years, they had been a people at peace as Samuel had spoke God's word and lived faithfully as God's man. And it had been a remarkable time for the nation of Israel. And yet instead of asking for another leader, another judge like Samuel, they demanded a human being that they could see, a king who wouldn't be God, but would rule in place of God. They wanted to be conformed to the image of everybody else around them. They wanted to fit in. They didn't want to stand out. They wanted to look like everybody else. It's not an overemphasis to say they, in essence, are spitting in God's face. And so God, in his discipline, gave them Saul. And yet this verse, tucked in this long, bizarre story, is such a bright spot shining the light on God's mercy. Do you see that even in the judgment of receiving Saul, commingled with the discipline of God is the mercy of God. Throughout the rest of 1 Samuel, we'll see repeatedly that Saul was a lousy king, that Israel got what they asked for, But don't miss this. Even in his discipline, God was still merciful. God would use Saul to bring about defeat at the hand of the Philistines. God still used Saul for good on behalf of the Israelites. 
like your favorite ice cream cone that's vanilla and chocolate swirl. God's punishment, His judgment, is here swirled with His mercy. God is so patient with His people. As many times as we try to push Him away, for those who are in Christ, God cannot be stiff-armed, resisted, or shooed. God stays put. Church, God is far more doggedly committed to us as His people than we are to Him. And even when we need His discipline, it will always be swirled with His mercy. But the coincidences are not over yet. Look down at verse 17 of chapter 10. Now, Samuel called together the Lord at Mitzvah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. This, friends, if we were watching a movie, would be a moment where the score is very intense. And the, the melodic line, the, the main theme running through a movie, would here be playing again. You see, this is almost word for word something God had said previously. When he rescued his people who had been in slavery in Egypt, out, brought them through the Red Sea, brought them to Mount Sinai, provided Moses to lead them. Almost those exact same words were shared. I brought you up. I delivered you from the hands of those who were oppressing you. The reader here is meant to see and hear that God is about to do something of enormous significance something that Israel will forever be talking about. And I recognize how far removed this feels from us. But stick with me a little bit longer. Verse 19, But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you've said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Essentially, that means they cast die. And the die revealed, the lots revealed Benjamin. He brought before the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and by the clan of the Medrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. So what's being said here is that among all the masses of all the people of Israel, they kept throwing dice until they came down to Saul. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord. Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself 
among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than all the other people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to the people, can you just imagine this scene? The dude is hiding. And he gets drug out unwillingly from his very first moment the people know he's king. He shows himself to be a coward. And yet, here's what Samuel says. Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Friends, our desires to fit in, to conform, can cause tremendous blindness to what is plainly before us. I don't know what to make of that. (laughs) Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he put them in a book and laid it before the Lord. In other words, yes, a human king has been provided, but this king is under God. God's word still reigns. God's still in charge. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah. And with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But, dun, dun, dun. Some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present But he held his peace. From the moment the king, the first king of Israel is declared, the nation is already divided. And it only gets worse and worse and worse with moments of grace and glory. But mostly the kings would be bad for the people. Now what do we learn together through this lengthy and rather laborious sermon. Well, let's think about Saul for a moment. Friends, like all of us, Saul is a rather complicated fellow. Saul isn't all good, and Saul isn't all bad. Saul looks like a king. If a king is supposed to be big and commanding and Domineering, as he walks in a room, people turn and look just because he's big. Then Saul's the guy. But Saul does not have the leadership or character fit for a king. And this would come to haunt him. Friends, by implication, we should remember that God will sovereignly provide for his people whether that's a king in a secular government, a president, a principal in a school, a parent for a child, pastors for a church. But we should be careful who and what we desire from our leaders. The wrong leader, an incompetent 
or a less than godly character in a leader will lead to great pain for the people. We'll see that in no uncertain terms as we work our way through the rest of this book. So this story, 1 Samuel chapter 9 and 10, is essentially answers the question, who became king of Israel? And it tells it in such a way that it's obvious that God had to have put this person up for this throne. But it's going to take two more chapters until the whole issue is finally settled. So you get to look forward to two more chapters of this next time. I think that these two chapters leave us wanting something more. Don't they? I mean, anecdotally, they're interesting. They're weird. They're kind of bizarre. They're amusing. But they leave us wanting more. Now, I don't mean more in the sense of a longer story. You've endured enough. But they leave us wanting something more superior, something more substantial, someone better. God's people do need a king. But not a king who is building his kingdom to be like the world. Not a king who cowardly hides behind the bags when it's his moment to take up leadership. Not a king who's incompetent. We need a king who's evaluated not by his height, but by his impeccable character. We need a king who would not take, 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 but who would give. We need a king who, when is sent by his father to find that which is lost, he is able. We have that king. His name is Jesus. You see, Saul is very much in juxtaposition with Jesus. Jesus is everything Saul isn't. Saul couldn't find the donkeys, but Jesus says he will find every single lost sinner that is his. And he reigns and rules as the king today over a kingdom in which we are under the glory and grace and goodness of God. A kingdom marked not by conformity to fit in to the world, but a kingdom not of this world, a kingdom far better. Friend, if you don't know this king, and in just a couple of moments, we're, we're going to wrap up, and I want to encourage you to ask somebody sitting near you, do you know King Jesus? If so, would you tell me more? And friend, if you do already know this king, would you look through the upcoming days and weeks and months of your life not as a bizarre 
series of random, frustrating coincidences. But as whatever the providential hand of God sees fit for you, as he is conforming you more and more to the image of Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you that all the Bible is meant for our good, to inform us, to persuade us, to teach us, to give us hope. Even stories about lost donkeys, goats, bread, and wine. Would you please use your word now to give life to your people? In Jesus' name, amen.